Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight Plus. That's how I came to meet Stacy Werder. We bought a sack of tobacco, had us a couple of rolled cigarettes, got a pint of Jack Daniels. I guess this is the kind of meeting you don't talk about, ain't it? A secret meeting? And he just kind of laughed and said, yeah, one of them kind of meetings we don't talk about. Good morning from a very windy North Dakota. This is Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. I'm James Walner. This is episode 19 of A Better Search for Barbara Cotton. In this episode, we speak with Red Sullivan, a man we've been looking for for a long time. We just spoke with him last night for about three hours, uh, we being myself and Lisa Joe of Find Barb Cotton. If you've been following along on the Barb Cotton season but missed episode 18, you might want to go back and listen to that first. If you're brand new to Dakota Spotlight, uh, we can't really give you a full recap of why this interview is so important, but I'll give it a try. I'll summarize it like this. This is how we got here, um, how we came to speak with Red last night. According to Barbara's mother, Louise, Barbara was in the company of a young man named Stacy Werder on the night she vanished. Mrs. Cotton told police that uh, two days later, she'd heard that Barbara might be with this guy, Stacy Werder, in the town of Scobie, Montana. Again, this is just two days after she disappeared. Stacy uh, Werder was never interviewed by police, as far as we know. And on July 15, 1981, three months after Barbara disappeared, he was arrested for disorderly conduct at a movie theater in the town of Malta, Montana. Uh, obviously, we're wondering if Stacy is responsible for Barbara's disappearance and possibly took his own life out of guilt or something else. During the season and investigation, we spoke with Stacy Werder's sisters out in California. From them, we learned that Stacy was paranoid schizophrenic and they both felt that he was capable of being responsible for Barbara's death. They also believe he probably was responsible. Another thing we learned from them in California was that after their brother died in jail, a young man, or actually three young men, came to California from Montana and delivered Stacy's belongings to their mother and father. They remembered one of these guys was named Red, which we understood to be a nickname. They didn't remember his last name or the names of the other two guys. So we've been wondering, well, who is Red? Wouldn't it be nice to talk to someone, anyone who knew Stacy Werder, during the time Stacy was in North Dakota and Montana, did Stacy tell this Red or others anything before he took his life? Anything about Barbara Cotton? Did he confess? Did Stacy say that he had nothing to do with it? Did he say anything? Was Red traveling with Stacy? Was he in Williston? And so Lisa, Joe, and myself and others spent a lot of time looking for a Red without having a last name. It was kind of impossible, so. Then this happened. Dakota Spotlight and Forum Communications requested to see records in Malta, Montana about Stacy Werder's arrest and death and learned that there was a coroner's inquest done in November of 1981, which was an investigation into Werder's death to confirm it was a suicide. So the inquest had nothing to do with Barbara's disappearance. In fact, 
there's nothing to indicate that anyone in Malta, Montana, knew about Barbara's disappearance in, here in neighboring North Dakota. Phillips County responded to my request that to see these documents, we would have to petition the county. So that's a legal process which required money and lots of paperwork and patience. We did it, Dakota Spotlight and Forum Communications, you know, in our request for, or quest for the truth, did just that. Took four months. Uh, we recently got the records. And again, listen to episode, the last episode, episode 18, to learn all about that. But the point to make here is that, the point to make here is that in that inquest documentation, a transcript of a sort of like a trial, there are witnesses. And these witnesses indicate that Stacy Werder, on the night he was arrested and later died, was in the company of a man named, you guessed it, Red. But even better, this time we got a last name, Sullivan. And initials, C.E. Sullivan, or Red Sullivan, was in the company of Stacy Werder when he got arrested at a movie theater in Malta on July 15, 1981. Stacy got arrested. C.E. Sullivan did not. Stacy then takes his own life in jail. So then we know a Red Sullivan was possibly the last person that Stacy Werder might have confided in or said anything to about Barbara Cotton. I'd like to point out that it was Lisa Joa, Fine Barb Cotton, who actually found Red once she had the last name and initials, and that wasn't easy either. But she did pass on this information to investigators on Friday last week. And myself, that is Dakota Spotlight, and Lisa Joe, Fine Barb Cotton, agreed we should let law enforcement, we should give them an opportunity to talk to Sullivan themselves before we got involved in any way. Then on Monday of this week, Lisa Joe asked me to go ahead and move forward with trying to get more information on Sullivan, as she had not received confirmation or at least definitive response that Sullivan would be spoken to by others. So we had a phone number to a pastor that Red Sullivan had used in a care of address as recently as about six years ago. And we knew that based on his sort of digital footprint, that he moved around all the time. So we had no idea, I had no idea or reason to believe really that Red Sullivan would still be at that care of address to this day, but it turns out he was. So suddenly I was on the phone with a pastor who told me that Red Sullivan was living on his property. He was 30 yards away from him at that very moment. And after I explained the whole story about Barbara Cotton, which was a story he'd never heard, you know, to this pastor, he suggested that he not bring this up with Red Sullivan at all, at least for now. He said Red lives a, lives a very private life, doesn't even have a phone. Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads, and you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And we have a, well, not so gently named podcast called Stop the Killing. Yep, there's a clue in the title. We need your help to end the global mass shooting epidemic. Find out how as we bring you the stories right from the source. If you would have told me that a Columbine could happen at Columbine, I would have said, no way. 
I remember just thinking, he's got a gun. Something rose up inside, and I said, not my school. What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. My little boy, Alex, was murdered. If we can fix the failures, we can save lives. My daughter, Elena, was killed. She'd want me to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. Join us and be part of the solution. Subscribe now to Stop the Killing podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your true crime podcasts. I passed this information on to Williston PD. I said, you know, we've located Red Sullivan. Here's his address, phone number to his landlord. And again, our intention was to give law enforcement the opportunity to be the first to ask Red. But then to my surprise, I got a call back from the pastor and he told me, he and another pastor had asked Red Sullivan if the name Stacy Werder was familiar to him, and Red had a big reaction to it, and then he handed the phone over to Red, and suddenly I was talking to him. But last night, Lisa Joe, of Fine Barb Cotton, and myself spoke with him for three hours on November 10th, 2021, which would be Barbara's, by the way, it was Barbara's 56th birthday. So we won't be hearing the full three hours of our conversations for practical reasons, but also for some legal reasons. And I started out by asking him to tell us about his life up to the point when he met Stacy Werder. Well, to tell you about my life would take a long, long time. I've been a wanderer my, my, since I was young, running away from my evil grandparents. So I can't tell you every place I've been or anything, but I was born in Lewistown, Montana in 1962. From there, uh, I guess my family moved to Malta sometime or other. I don't remember. I was way too young then. And I lived in Malta up until 1972 after my parents got divorced. My dad disappeared. Didn't hear from him. Uh, Don't know where he went or anything at that time. My mom, my sister and I, first of all, my sister and I went through a couple of foster homes up there in Montana after the divorce. My brother was already in the boys' home in Helena, Montana. After the two foster homes my sister and I was in, my mom got us back for, I don't know how long, a few months, maybe a year. I, I don't really remember. I was really young at that time. And in 1972, she, I guess she decided she couldn't take care of us no more because of her uh, promiscuous ways, I guess I should say. So she took me and my sister for a bus ride down to El Paso and dumped us on my grandparents' doorstep, which they lived in Candy Teal, Texas, which is west of El Paso, a few miles, and left us. This day, I think she wrote one letter and never heard from her again. So I lived with my grandparents for, I don't know, four years or so. And it was a living hell every day. I finally managed to get myself out of that situation. We'll not go into that. And I got placed into a boy's ranch, which is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Well, I was supposed to be there until I was 18 because of the circumstances of the way I chose to get away from my grandparents. Nine months, nine, ten months after I was placed in the boys' ranch, I was coming back from the stream from fishing with some friends, and I looked up, 
And I see my dad standing in front of the office of the boys' ranch. And even then, after not seeing him for so long, I knew who it was. Well, as it turned out, it was my dad and his girlfriend. And he pulled some strings with the child services there in Texas or whatever. However he did it, he got me out of the boys' ranch. He and I kicked around the country for a while. And we was up in Montana for a while. And then he left, I stayed, had me a job up there uh, in my hometown, actually in Sleeping Buffalo Resort, just east of Malta, and kind of fell out of that job, got a bus, took a bus ride to Albuquerque, joined back up with my dad, we kicked around for a while again, and then I got mad at him and left him, and finally went out on my own for good. And I was living in New Mexico. I was moving oil rigs at the time, and I ended up getting my pelvis snapped into moving a rather large oil rig outside of Logan, New Mexico. I was hospitalized. Uh, I finally got out of the hospital, recouped from that, uh, was awarded a small settlement for my injury. The lawyer that handled my case uh, fronted me $500, and I went up to Malta, Montana to await the rest of my money. When I got up there, I talked to some old friends and stuff and got me a room for a few nights or however long. I know the bus ticket cost like $78 if I remember right. And by the time I got up there, paid for the room and everything for a week, I was down to very little money. And uh, within a week, a little over a week, I was out of money. And still my settlement hadn't come through. So I guess I decided, I guess I better do something. I ended up finding me a camping spot on the river outside of Malta, Montana. That's how I came to meet Stacy Werder. I was walking into town one morning and he was standing out there hitchhiking and he was right at the main junction going into Malta. You come off Highway 2, you go under a underpass, which is the the trestle for the railroad tracks, and you go into Malta, and he was right there at that junction, hitchhiking, and I stopped, and I was talking to him, and he said he was on his way on to California to his folks' home, and he was broke, and we ended up camping out together, and we was having a pretty good time. I mean, we was hunting for stuff to eat and stuff because I didn't have any money because I just spent all my advanced money and was still waiting on my settlement money and I don't know we camped together for I couldn't really tell you the exact amount of time but it was like a week maybe a little more And I couldn't even tell you the conversations we had because I just can't remember it. But he seemed like an all right guy. He didn't have any crosswords about anything. Didn't say much about anything. 
And during this time, I'd been borrowing money from Bill Hoagland and some friends that I knew just to eat. He had a little 22 rifle in his bedroll, and we was using that to uh, supplement our meals with pigeon, uh, owls, whatever we could shoot with his little 22. Well, after six or seven days of camping and stuff like that, we walked into town and I asked Bill for another $10 and he gave me a roll of quarters. And somehow we came up with the idea of going to a movie instead of just going back to the campground, the campsite. So we bought a sack of tobacco, had us a couple of rolled cigarettes, got a pint of Jack Daniels, decided on a movie to watch, went to the theater, went in there, got a couple of sodas from the snack bar, walked in the movie theater, was drinking, talking, waiting for the movie to start. And I guess he kicked his drink over just as the movie was starting and stuff. And it ran down to some girls where they were sitting and one of them got up to go get the manager. And as soon as the manager came back in there and started ringing up with us about the disturbance and the whiskey and stuff, I left. And I went back to the campsite. Next day, I get up no Stacy Werder, so I figured he had got thrown in jail. So I walked into town, and sure enough, as I was walking down the street, one of the police officers rolled up beside me and asked me if I was Carson Sullivan. I said, yes. And he said, well, we need you to come with us for a minute. And I ended up going to identify Stacy Werder because they told me he had hung himself in jail that night. So... That was the total involvement that I had with Stacy Werder. And after everything was done, the, the ruling of suicide and all that, the paperwork was finished. They cleared me of anything going on around there. And by that time, the, the cashier's check for my settlement had cleared. I got my money, bought a pickup from some childhood friends that I had grown up with in Malta, who were at that time about 21, 22, my age, and uh, got his belongings together. And the two friends and I went to Wairika, California to give his belongings back to his folks. Now, I don't know, can't tell you how long I was there. I think it was a day or so, maybe. But I know right after I got finished with them and got everything squared away with them, I had to find a job because I was broke after spending the money on the pickup and some of my personal stuff. So I found a carnival that was playing in Crescent City, California, which is not far from Wairika, and I joined on with the carnival. And once I left that area, I never talked to or seen any of the worders again until... This came up the other night. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act. 
like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Why Why don't, let me ask you that right now. Yesterday, so I'll tell people listening, I, I called basically your landlord, I guess we could say. And he said it's okay for me to refer to him as a pastor, as he is. And um, yes. can you just tell me yesterday, you're sitting at, your pastor called you over to have a chat about, because I spoke to him and then he brought this up to you. Can you just exp- uh, describe describe that situation and your feeling it must have been well i'll let you tell it well i watched my granddaughter on the weekends and i ended up watching her for an extra day this week so she was still here yesterday and when my daughter got off work and came to pick her up we got my granddaughter loaded in the car said her goodbyes and my daughter left and rob stepped out that is my landlord he stepped out of the door and said, Red, Mark's coming over in about 10 minutes, who is his uh, assistant pastor on these weddings. And we've got something we want to run by you. So when he gets here, could you come down? I said, sure. I, I didn't know what it was about or anything. He never told me. I thought, well, they've got some plan for what's going on these days and how to kind of go about fighting it or something. That's what I was thinking. So... Because they're they're heavily involved in the political side of this thing going on these these days, so I just thought that's what it was about. So when Mark rolled in, I went down there and I just kind of cut up with him. Said, "I guess this is the kind of meeting you don't talk about, ain't it? A secret meeting?" And he just kind of laughed and said, "Yeah, one of them kind of meetings we don't talk about." So we walked in with Rob and. He directed us upstairs, and I was, and that's when I started getting a funny feeling about, about something because I've been inside Rob's house a few times, and he's never said go upstairs so we can talk. You know, we've always talked downstairs by the wood stove or, or whatever. Well, we get upstairs, and we get seated, and he's got a couple of cards, info cards, which he uses for his weddings, and he starts reading off one about this woman that this girl that had disappeared 40 years ago and, and and on and on and how she had been seen with a Stacy Werder the night she disappeared. And I was like, who Stacy Werder? I couldn't believe it. After all this time, that name popped up and out of the blue, because I've thought about Stacy several times over the years but never have I ever heard anybody else mention his name. So it was quite a shock when Rob said, and she was seen with Stacy Warder the night she disappeared. And I was like, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And from there, he just told me what was going on and everything and how you had got a hold of him and, and how 
you would track me down and knew that I had been associated with him just before his death and stuff. So, and there you go. The rest is kind of history. Yeah, and to be clear, finding you was definitely a joint effort between myself and Lisa Joe on the phone. So I, I got your name. Well, actually, we first heard the name Red from the Worders out in California, or more preci- precisely, a friend of theirs who was staying there, and you met, and she remembered you being named Red. So we've been kind of wondering who was this Red who came with Stacy's belongings. And then lo and behold, about two weeks ago, after about four months of trying, I got the coroner's inquest about Stacy Warder, and it mentions Red Sullivan and then your initials, C.E. So since then, we've been trying to find C.E. Sullivan. That's as far as I took it, was getting that C.E. part. And then Lisa Joe did amazing work tracking you down. And before she says anything... Um, today you listen to some of the podcast. What that must have been surreal for you to hear us, your own name, people looking for you. How how did that feel? Well, I first seen it, not the podcast itself, but the uh, the description beside the podcast about how y'all had been looking for a C.E. Sullivan. And he was associated with Stacy. Where I was like, that tripped me out in the first place because I've never seen my name online like that. I was like, wow. And then I started listening to podcasts, and I was like, holy cow. And I had no idea at all that the, when the Inquisition came up, the inquest for Stacy's death, that they were looking for me for that inquest. I had no idea because by that time, I was way the heck out of Montana. I had done been California, and I, I think I was way down south somewhere by that time. So, yeah, it was quite a surprise to hear my name on the podcast and see it there in the description. I was like, oh, gee. Lisa, Joe, um, let's talk about last Friday night. I mean, that was for us. That's when we got his name. Amazing job. Uh, I don't know. You didn't sleep much last week. Uh, great work. How, how does it feel for you? Well, I mean, Mr. Sullivan, you are not an easy man to find. No, ma'am. I have been wandering <laughs> since I got out of the boys' ranch and back with my dad. We wandered this country together. We drove from one end to the other all over the place. And after I left him, I've just wandered my entire life because there are so many blank spots in my life about things. And so much that I don't know. And the only way to I guess shut it out of my mind was just to wander. And that's all I've ever done until I got here. And now I'm just too old to wander anymore. Pastor Rob's a good, good old feller. He's tried to help me get a clemency for that little old felony I got 40 years ago. And he's, he's wrote a letter to, to the governor of Florida and everything. And I've, filed three times for a clemency from the state of Florida for that little old felony that I got. I've been turned down twice in the, the last time in 2016 when I wrote the records department for the, my court records and everything. I never heard back from them at all. So I've just gave up on that. I'm going to carry that felony till the day I die. And it's, it's just a little old burglary charge that I committed before I was ever 21. I was trying to find some food. 40 years ago, 
yeah, that's all I was trying to do was find some food because me and three other guys that I fell in with were all hungry. And I'll tell you what, if I'd have known that the Salvation Army was just a mile from the building we broke into, I'd have went to the Salvation Army. Yeah. But we didn't, we didn't know it was there. And the place we broke into looking for food was wired and we got busted. But right. I've never, I've never been back to prison since, ever. So, yeah, speaking of that, some of the stuff we got wrong about you was, you know, we were looking for, we had heard, this is from California, that you had possibly gone away for 35 years for armed robbery, that you were blonde. And what else did we get wrong, Lisa Joe? <laughs> uh, well, and the, the blonde part is from the inquest. Yeah, it was a witness in the inquest. Someone who saw you that night when he was arrested or something. Yeah, the well, theater owner. owner. Yeah. That could be an honest mistake because I don't really remember. I know the lights weren't on in the theater, so it must have been fairly dark in there, and I could have been easily mistaken as a blonde because I wore a cap and everything. So, you know, that could have been just a natural mistake. And I don't, for everyone listening right now, I don't know that we made it crystal clear, but I'll just ask you, you had, you, you, you knew nothing about a missing girl, correct? No, I didn't know anything until yesterday, last night. I know you said you don't remember any conversations, you know, do you remember, did he say anything like where he came from? I know you said he's going to California. Has anything popped up in the last 24 hours? No, nothing that I can remember that would be significant to this case. You know, he never mentioned anything about a girl that he's seen or anything. Did he mention any, um, like, previous jobs he held or ones that he was hoping to hold? No, not that I remember. I know. We spent nights out there camping and stuff, and I know there was conversations, but I couldn't tell you what they were about now. Well, that's yeah. Been, that's been so long ago and and over campfire talk, you know, and stuff. Right. I just know that I met him while he's hitchhiking through my hometown. We ended up camping together. He hung himself in jail, and that was the last thing I ever knew about the guy after I dropped his stuff off in Wairika, California, you know, and, and they were like, man, there ain't nobody in the world that would come 1,500 miles or so to bring someone's dead stuff, dead son's belongings back to them. And they thought that was the greatest thing on earth, man, because I took the time to bring his stuff back to his folks. Well, and I, I mean, I have to admit that that's a reason why you were so terribly interesting to us and that we assumed that you guys had to have been at least pretty damn close. Well, who would do that, right? Close. I don't know whether we was that close or not. And so we was fairly good friends for the six or seven days that we spent together. Right. Right. But my way of thinking is I would really appreciate it if somebody did that for me. And yeah. it's, it's the same reason that I'm talking to both of you now is because I have a daughter and I have grandkids. And if any of them ever went missing without a trace, it would kill me. It would, especially my granddaughter. 
She is the joy of my life. And if anything ever happened to her, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. so I can, I can kind of relate to the missing girls folks and stuff, you know, how they must feel because I wouldn't want to feel that way, not for anything on this earth. That's why I decided it doesn't matter how private of a person I am. I need to help as much as I can because I would never want that to happen to me. And we thank you so much. We're so appreciative. Um, I have a follow-up question. Do you know anything about, I guess you walked out of the theater. Was, was he getting drunk? Did you notice anything? Like he ends up getting arrested. We had... Like I said, we snuck a pint of whiskey into the theater, and we'd probably had one drink, and I think we was working on our second one when he kicked his drink over accidentally. And I believe it ran all the way down to them girls down there, and they smelled the whiskey. And I guess we was getting a little loud also, and one of them went and complained. And when the manager showed up and asked us to leave and Stacy started getting mouthy. I told him, I said, listen, buddy, I said, this is where I was raised up at. People around here know me. I can't afford any trouble here because I'm waiting on my settlement money from a broken pelvis. I said, if you continue to argue, you're on your own. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop. I said, see ya. And I just walked out. I didn't want any trouble with the police in my hometown. So if, if, um, would you say it was kind of like a switch went off with him? Yeah, because I didn't really see any sense in taking it to that level of, of agitation, I guess you would say. Yeah. Because we were in the wrong and I knew it. You're not supposed to carry stuff like that in the theater. You're not supposed to be in there drinking and stuff like that. I knew that, but we did it anyway. Well, when it caused trouble and it brought the manager to us, it was then bringing attention down on us, and I couldn't I couldn't have any of that. And he just, it was like a different part of him that I'd never seen. Because all the times we talked and all the times we were sitting around the campfire and we were hunting and stuff like that, he never acted this way. But that one drink, seemed to do something because as soon as that manager come back and asked us to leave, Stacy was ringing up in his face big time and ringing up is a corny term for uh, uh, getting nasty. So when the police came, when the police officer came and arrested Stacy, asked him to leave, um, Stacy pretty much said, like, I don't have to. And um, then he started like cussing and it, you know, got to the point where the officer's like, yeah, you do. We're going. And he stood up and he started cussing more. And he actually, and maybe you could tell me because like, I'm really, this is like a sticking point for me, but Stacy apparently grabbed the cap off of his head and ripped it in half and threw it into the crowd. Do you remember what kind of hat he wore? I couldn't tell you. No. Right. I, I'm be... like, was it a paper hat? I don't understand. No, it had to be a ball cap just like I right. wore it. That's what we kind of figured, but like the the strength to rip one of those in two. It, well, it's it's not really that hard. You just have to know where to pull at. <laughs> I guess I never thought about it. I never I never thought it through that much. But um, yeah, I just I mean like, gosh, I was just like, wow, he was angry. 
Yeah, he. I wasn't there to see that. I heard. I was listening to the podcast and I heard the. You know what was said about it, and that is a little extreme. I don't know if I could do that. And I've right. I've been I've been moving pig iron most of my life, and I, I've got some pretty strong arms, but I don't even know if I could rip a cap in two. Right. Just to get the um the leverage to be able to do it on something so small, even. <laughs> right. Well, I don't, you know, I wish I could recall a lot more about him. And I wish I could remember what kind of hat he was wearing, but I, if I'm not mistaken, it was a ball cap, some sort of ball cap, because back in the 80s, everybody wore a ball cap. Yeah. I mean, and that's, a, I feel like that's a very safe assumption, and that's kind of what I figured he was wearing as well. Like, you know, they probably would have noted if he was wearing a fisherman's hat or, you know, like I said, a paper hat. <laughs> Somebody right. would have noticed that. They would have noted well, it. You know, a lot of ball caps back then had the cloth front and the cloth bill, but the back half of it was like a, a plastic oh, mesh. Yeah, that so, would be easier to tear. Yes, that would be easy to rip, and it probably, once you start ripping it and it hits the cloth part, it's going to split off just and rip right down the seam. So, yeah, it's split right in two, easy. Okay, now it sounds a little less like superhuman angry strength and more realistic to me. So, thank you. <laughs> you bet. I have a question. Do you remember Stacy making a phone call home from Malta that day or the day before or at all? No, I don't. If he did, he did it on his own time. Yeah. Uh, do you remember what other belongings he had besides a bedroll and a twenty-two caliber rifle? His field jacket. That's your that's your OD green military issue field jacket. It's from like I've got a couple of them. I'm into military camouflage clothes too because I like getting off out in the woods. But it's just a plain green military issue field jacket and he had one of them uh just regular odds and ends that i can think of you know stuff you carry with you maybe a sewing kit because even i i still carry a sewing kit with me I, I learned how to sew when i was a kid i sew all my stuff up uh just regular odds and things that you carry when you're hitchhiking or wandering around just I can't give you specifics, but just his pack, his bedroll, the twenty-two rifle, uh, and just a few odds and ends and clothes and stuff. And I asked you this yesterday, but he, you don't recall him mentioning that he had been in the Glasgow jail for a couple of weeks or 10 days or something? No, I don't I don't remember at all. I know where Glasgow is because I've spent some time in Glasgow, but I don't recollect him saying anything about being in jail there. If Sorry. he had of, I'd have probably found myself another camp spot because I didn't want to be around anybody at that time like that. So um, where you picked him up, it's possible that he would have been traveling towards Malta from Glasgow. He could have been because he is right there at the main junction from Highway 2 and where the road splits off and goes into Malta, right there at the edge of town. He okay. was right there on Highway 2. And okay. I, where I was camped out on the river, I'll come across the old railroad trestle bridge every time and hit the highway and walk in and hit the junction to go under the underpass into Malta. And he was standing right there at that little junction at the intersection. 
and we started talking and that was it. You have more questions, Lisa Joe? I bet you have a hundred, but do you have? Oh, I, yeah, I'm full of them all the time, but, um, I'm trying to, um, so I guess I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit just because, um, I, I was just going to bring up a couple things, um, <laughs> thinking that maybe it might stir up your memory a little bit, but, um, so you remember obviously Stacy's sister's friend that wrote to you. I vaguely remember her and I vaguely remember getting a letter while I was in uh prison there in Florida. Uh, okay. It wasn't, it wasn't even really a prison. It was a, what they called it, it was a, I forget what they called it in that place, but it was a little pea farm. And we had work details. I was put on a bull gang. I worked out in fields and stuff. And it, you had sales and you had a fence around the place, but it wasn't like what you see on TV, big prisons with big stone walls and stuff like that. It's nothing more like, like a, a work camp type. It was just like a little work camp. I was, okay. I was facing four years in Lake Butler, but they caught me in the building. So I held on for 75 days until they finally come to me with a plea bargain that I accepted, which was a year with no probation, no parole or anything, all my good time and gain time and state time. And I said, okay, I will go for that because they caught me in the building. There's no sense in fighting it. Right. So I pled guilty and I served nine months on a one-year sentence. So it wasn't a prison. It was just a little work farm. And it was just for burglar. Here's, I'm going to tell you what it was. It was a church. Me and the three guys that I fell in with came across this church. We were hungry as hell. We hadn't eaten nothing in two days. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that word. We hadn't eaten nothing in two days. And I was looking at the auditorium. And I could see the big vent stacks for the grills that they have in the auditorium. I've been around this country a lot. I know what I'm looking for. And I told the guys, I said, in there is food. They'll have a walk-in freezer in there. They'll have food in there. Well, they decided that they wanted to go into the office and get the money. I said, look, guys, I said, you're in Florida. This is a Baptist church. They don't have money. You want a church, you better find you a Catholic church. Right. So I was outvoted. (laughs) Excuse me for coughing so much. I have emphysema, and it really irritates me to cough a lot or talk a lot. Oh. So, but anyway. We took a vote. I was outvoted. They was going to go in and find the office to get the money. So I said, well, I'm going to stay out here and keep watching. I don't want no part of it. So they all went into the building. I stood out there and was watching and looking around, and I got to notice him just what kind of neighborhood we were in. And I thought, mm-hmm. sure, as, sure as heck, one of these people are going to see me standing over here, and I'm going to get swarmed by all these people. So. I decided to go in and find these other fellas. Well, when I went in there, I found them just as they was breaking into the office. And they broke open this little sliding glass window. We got into the office, went through the office, found a styrofoam cup with a dollar seventy-five worth of change in it. And about mm-hmm. that time, I look up and there's red and blue lights flashing on the windows. I was like, "Man, we are busted!" And sure, sure enough, man. The place, the office, 
they had had so many break-ins on that church that they finally wired it straight to the police station, which is three, four blocks away. And out of four of us, two of us got caught, and we were all hiding within a foot and a half of each other, and only two of us got caught. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was really strange. And the nine months, the three months I was in jail and the nine months that I served in on the pea farm, Never, not once, did either one of them other two fellers offer to bring us tobacco or anything. They split, which I don't really blame them, I guess. They split, got the heck out of there, and I ain't seen them to this day. And so, like, it's safe to say that um, if you guys had just went to the pantry like you wanted to, it like, there wasn't any alarms on the pantry and things like that, you... Right, but it was just... The office that was wired. With a dollar seventy-five in it. With a dollar seventy-five worth of change. And I told him from the get-go, I said, This is a Baptist church. You're not gonna find any money in a Baptist church. And they wouldn't believe me. Had to find out the hard way. Yeah. We did we did find out the hard way. So that's what it was all about. That's what that was all about. We were looking for food. And got busted with a burglary charge over a dollar seventy-five, and that's why that's why I've never done anything like that again, ever. I've never been back to prison. I've been locked up a couple times. I got in trouble, uh, you know, minor stuff. Minor stuff, pretty minor, yeah. But I've never been back to prison ever. I took that to heart. I'd be curious to know if you remember anything about when you got to the Werder home in California, I would imagine that Stacy's mother uh, must have been wanting answers to what happened to her son. If, if Do you remember her asking you questions or being distraught? or? Yeah, she was pretty. When she first laid eyes on his belongings, she was pretty tore up. Uh, I remember that. And she grabbed his stuff up and... It was like a while later, she came back out and said, man, I'm going to thank you from the bottom of my heart because you brought his stuff back here. And she she did want to know what happened. All I could tell her was, man, we got into trouble in the in the theater. I left. He ended up in jail. And the only thing I the only thing I know about is when they picked me up the next morning, said he hung himself. That's all I know. So. They didn't seem to have any problem with me or anything. They was real happy to meet me. That They was happy as all get out that I had brought his stuff all that way from Montana to to them when I could have easily just kept the twenty two rifle and, and thrown their clothes and everything away. And saved yourself the whole ordeal. The whole aggravation, yeah. But I didn't because I would want somebody to do the same for me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do you remember how you got their address and contact information? Through the police, I suppose. You know, I don't really recall. All I know is I know they lived in Wairika because of Stacy. I, I don't know if he had their address or maybe I called them before I left Malta. I can't remember. I really can't remember. Um, I was going to, um, in addition to what I was 
asking about earlier, so this going back to you and Wairika again. So um, recently I spoke to that friend that you re- recall meeting vaguely. Um, right. And uh, I kind of stirred up a memory with her and she's like, you know, I, I recall that one of the friends that was with him was having some terrible abdominal issues. And that Cynthia was very concerned about him and and trying to convince him that he should go get medical attention. And he was just not trying to do that. But um, like she was very concerned about um, abdominal issues this guy was having. Like she thought he had an ulcer or something. Oh, I don't remember that. It could be because, let's see, after we... We all went to work for that carnival. But I think they ended up going back home after a week of working with that show. Because I never saw them again after Crescent City. Have you ever been spoken to by any law enforcement agency and have been asked any questions about missing Barbara Cotton? No, and it wouldn't surprise me that they may be have been looking for me for an interview, but like you two have admitted, I have been very hard to find because I've never had a steady, my feet have never grown any roots anywhere. This is the longest that I've ever been in one place in my life with the exception of my short marriage, which lasted four years. So basically what you're saying is, even though no one's asked you about it, that doesn't mean they weren't looking for you. Exactly. I, I just don't know. The way my life has been, the way it started out to as a child, I didn't want any more hurt than I suffered as a child. I didn't want any more crushed hopes. I didn't want any more hurt feelings or anything. So I kept on the move and I built a a solid wall around my feelings so I could never be hurt again. And I swore that I would never, ever settle down anywhere. And I pretty much haven't until lately. And now I've I've had 13 broken bones in my life. I've got emphysema. I've got COPD. I've had melanoma. I had a big old chunk of my left thigh cut out years ago because of melanoma. Uh, it's just one thing after another. Now I'm not able to travel anymore. And I don't really want to. My daughter's here. My grandkids are here. So now I'm trying to spend time with them before, before, well. Before you run out of time. Before I run out of time, yes. Right. Well, some, you know, like I always say, um, things tend to happen the way they're supposed to. And maybe if it took all that to slow you down and settle you down, you know, embrace it. Well, that's what I'm doing. You can bet on it because the best part of my life now is being able to spend time with my granddaughter on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Like I said, she is the joy of my life. And she, I don't know, we... Hell, I give her piggyback rides. I, we play games and all sorts of stuff. And I would rather see her laugh and smile than cry, which any anybody would. But to to be around my granddaughter is 
the joy of my life. So, and I was, a couple of months ago, I found out that my mother is back in Malta, Montana. Oh. And this is what I've heard. I don't know whether it's true, but I was on my way out there to find out. I've got a pickup, but I don't have a lot of money. I live off SSI. And my daughter talked me out of it because she said, if you leave here, you're going to kill your granddaughter. She will not make it without you. And that's what stopped me from going. And all I want to, all I want to know, all I, the one question I want to ask my mom is why. That's all I want to know. Mr. Sullivan, I will be in Malta a week from today. That's the plan. Um, I'm going there to view some photographs from the jail cell when where Stacy died, speak with the sheriff, and just get a feeling for the town. If there's any way I can help you ask that question, I mean, we can talk about that later, but I'm just, you've been so uh, helpful to us. I just want to uh, offer that, and we can talk about that after the podcast here, if you would like. That, that would be that would be great. Uh, I don't know what she could do. I don't even know if she's there, you know, with any certainty. This is just what I heard, but it makes perfect sense because that was her hometown. You know, that's where her parents, my grandparents were from and everything. And I believe she's still there. I didn't think she was alive still. When I heard the news, I was like, really? She's back in Malta? And I was I was on my way back there, and I just decided no. Because if she has avoided me for the last, Jesus, since 1972, if she doesn't want anything to do with me or my sister anymore, then that's her prerogative. But why would she go back there? <coughs> where there's so many memories concerning the family. That's what I don't understand. And my brother is buried over there in Whitehall, Montana, and I just wonder if she's ever been to his grave. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about your brother after the podcast. Lisa Joe's well, do you how no, much We're going to talk about it during the podcast. Okay. Right? Like, we're going to discuss it on the podcast, and then I'll take some background information after. It's up to Mr. Sullivan how much. Um, so basically, this conversation came about that uh, Lisa Joe offered Mr. Sullivan some help uh, with some research. And um, not only for that reason, like, you, you want to help us with this Barbara Cotton case. Uh, Mr. Sullivan agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, at this point, I'm unclear about how much you want to share about what Lisa Joe's going to help you with? Um, I will, you know, I've been thinking about it all day. And I would share my entire life with whoever wants to know about it, because maybe it'll make help somebody else to keep from making the same mistakes that I made. I've been through back, back years and years ago, there was an old saying I've been through the creek and over the mountain. And that's the way I feel. I've been, from the time I was a child, I have been through it. And I have survived. Barely. When I was a kid living with my grandparents, I ate cat food to stay alive. 
my grandparents, my grandmother specifically raised over 200 cats. It was hot in Candy Teal in the Southwest. Hot, 110, 115 degrees in the daytime. They had cat houses. Twice a day, I had to empty all the litter boxes and feed all the cats. Now, there wouldn't be food for me and my sister to eat, but there would be cat food for them cats to eat. I got whooped three times a week. I went to school with my clothes covered with cat hair, smelling like cat urine. Nobody knows what it's like. Well, you know, one of the thing, one, one of the things that keeps coming up in this story with Barbara Cotton is through the family, uh, Barbara's sister Kathy, for example, that people noticing that even though Barbara's gone, this search for her has really led to a lot of new connections. And um, you know, well, I, Lisa, you had something from the family today about this, didn't you? Yeah, but why do you got to ask me right now? Because now I'm all choked up. Um, again, um, this is like the third time during this conversation, but hold on, let me get it together. Well, I don't mean, to, I don't mean <laughs> no. to make anybody cry. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just one of those people, but like. Um, oh, you so, ain't, honey, you ain't heard the worst of it yet. <laughs> no, I just mean like the, like when you were talking about your granddaughter earlier, I got all choked oh. up and how, why you offered to help and. And then, um, obviously, I know what James is indicating right now, and I've been like, crap, am I going to be able to see that, say that? But um, I uh, I was discussing um, all of this with Barb's sister, Kathy, today on the phone, and, um, you know, and, and she she thinks it's so awesome that you were willing to talk to us. And, you know, I told her that, you know, I, I offered to do what I can to help you um, – you want to find information about what happened to your brother in Montana. And, um, and she got all, you know, kind of choked up and she's like, you know, at the end of the day, even if because Barb disappeared, maybe this leads to you getting some answers about your brother, you know, and and that, that makes her happy. You know, it, I've been wondering about this all day long since last night. Why did this happen? Especially, right. since, especially since this is the first I knew about Barbara Cotton being missing for 40 years. This is the first I knew about. Why did this come along now? And it is, it's, there's got to be a reason. Yeah. The higher power upstairs is working somehow. Now, this issue with my brother, that's a long, long time ago. Right. A long time ago. And I wasn't going to do this podcast. I wasn't going to do it. And I sat here and thought about it. And I thought, man, put yourself in their shoes. And it's just like me carrying all the belongings back to Stacy's parents. I would want somebody to do that for me. Now that I'm, well, I've been a parent for since 1990 when my daughter was born. But I look back on things, and by the grace of God, we didn't lose my daughter. I'm divorced now, you know, and, and all that. But I was, 
we never did have that happen with my daughter. And I'm so thankful. Mm -hmm. And I could not imagine what it feels like to have something like that happen. And, you know, I've puzzled about it and puzzled about it. And as bad as Stacy acted that night towards the manager and the cops, I still just cannot see him doing something like that. I just, I just, I, I can't see him disappearing a young girl like that. That's what I was uh, getting to. Because yeah. our con- our conversations that we had was nothing like that ever. He never led me to believe that he could do anything like that to another human being. Because I camped with him night after night there for six or seven nights, and him with that rifle and everything, and I never did get the faintest inkling that there was anything wrong with him. Not once. Until and you did you did listen to the episode um, that his where his sisters spoke? Yes, I listened to episode okay. five and eighteen. Yep. So I guess the way that I kind of took it, you know, like even his sister Laura says, like it's not like you know they they seem to think that he absolutely is capable of it, and um, I guess I would venture to say that well, they say it themselves that they think that he is responsible or they've always thought he was. Um, And the way Laura put it was, it's not like he would have premeditated it, like planned it out. It wouldn't be like that. It would just be like that switch flipped. Right. You know, like how how it did kind of at the theater. I mean, granted he didn't get violent with anybody, but. Well, here's the thing. They definitely know him or knew him better than I did. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's my take on it, though. Now, unless he worked in Williston for a few months, he wouldn't know what to do with a body. Uh, yeah, and we have discussed that. We yeah, have. And in and, and, and 40 years, not one bone has been found. Right. Not one. Now, you're not just going to go do something crazy to another human being and just dump them off out in the field somewhere and not expect it to be found in 40 years. And without a car and, yeah. Exactly. She just disappeared off the face of the planet. Right. With no trace. Now, there there are pits pits and stuff like that that could probably be used because I'm I've moved oil rigs, I've worked oil rigs, and I know about locations and stuff like that. But you would have to know where these deep pits were. And have a way to get there. And have a way to get the body there, exactly. Mm -hmm. And he was riding his thumb when he came through my hometown. Yep. You're not going to carry a body through any town, taking it somewhere to try to dump it. You're not going to have it over your shoulder. Right. So that's why I say... I just, his demeanor and and the way he was while we were camped out together and everything was never gave me any inclination that he was some type of homicidal schizophrenic maniac is what I'm saying. Right, right. But now 
you, we're all talking over the phone here and you haven't met me face to face and I have the kind of personality that will make a lot of people stop and look at me and a lot of them see something in me they don't like it's called because I've been taking care of myself since I was a young child and I know how to defend myself and he may have seen the same thing so he knew that he couldn't push his temperament towards me because I'm the kind that is not going to take it. That's what I got right. in trouble for a couple of times after I got out of prison later on in life. One of them was because God got attacked by a dude in New Mexico, him and his buddy both. And I put one of them in the hospital. I about killed him because mm -hmm. I'm very defensive. If, if you're going to get stupid with me, I'm going to get stupid back. And people see that in me. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying mm -hmm. I'm a dangerous man by any means. What but I'm they know not to mess with you. They know they can look in my eyes, and they know, by God, if they start something with me, we're going to town. Katie bar the crap house door because it's on. So that's what people see in me. They know that if they start something with me, then they're going to have to go whole hog or die. Mm -hmm. And that's just an expression. Oh, that's a very good point. I mean, he might have picked, that, picked up on that, like, this is not a dude I'm going to mess with so that's, that's that's what i'm saying i think he picked up on that and he knew he couldn't pull any of his stuff that, that he does with other people so he acted real nice around me and everything and then that night when he got that one drink in him and we got in trouble he just he lost it right that's what I'm thinking. and and that was the that was the only time you really saw him worked up like that anyways correct absolutely correct that was the only time See, and, and his sisters were thinking that it would have been in one of those states if anything had happened. I mean, obviously, we don't we don't know that Stacy is responsible at all. You know, that's why it was so important for us to find you. We thought maybe you'd have some sort of answers to that. But, um, yeah, I mean, we don't know that Stacy is responsible. Um, his sisters think that in one of those states he could have been. But. Yeah, it's it's all we don't know anything. Right. I never seen I never seen his other side until that night. And when he started going off like that, that's when I decided I'd best get my young butt out of there because yep. I knew that if I stuck around, I would be in jail too. And yeah. I wasn't gonna be in jail in my hometown. Not for anything. So mm -hmm. when he kept on arguing with the manager, I said, dude, I done told you. I'm out of here now. See ya. Well, and especially imagine imagine being willing to go to jail <laughs> over a spilled drink. Right. And then, no one... and then killing yourself in jail over that. I mean, I keep thinking, wh what would have happened if he never spilled that drink? What would have happened if we had never gone to the theater? Yep. Hindsight is twenty twenty. It always is. Always is. Mr. Sullivan, I have a question. Um, I stated it just, I was just thinking out loud in the last episode, I believe. Was, I got the feeling that he wanted to get arrested for a bed and a meal. Um, does that, would that, does that make any sense at all to you? I mean, you've lived some of that life. Um, Not to me because, you know, it doesn't make sense to me, especially about the meal part, because we were not starving. We uh, we managed 
to eat pretty well with that little 22. Like I said, we're as, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've hunted, I know how to take care of myself. I didn't have anything to hunt with. So I didn't know how I was going to make it without borrowing a bunch of money from people that I knew. But then he comes along and he's got this 22 rifle. So we were eating pretty good, let me tell you. And I'm not going to go into the whole experience on the hunting, but we were not hungry. And with the money that I borrowed from friends in town, we would get potatoes and stuff like that. And let me tell you something. I can cook up a mess of fried <laughs> fried potatoes. Especially nice. over campfire. Yep. And when you've got when you've got pigeon or owl or something like that to go with it, you're not you're not hungry. So that's why right. I can't understand why he would go to jail just over a meal in the bed. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for that. I w- that was just a while, you know, something that popped into my head, but doesn't sound very plausible at all now. No, it, that's why I can't figure it out. He wouldn't go to jail just for a meal in the bed. Not my way of thinking because we were not starving. We weren't even hungry. We were we were eating pretty good considering that we were hoboing. And and yeah, he was sleeping on his bedroll at the campsite. Yeah. I mean, and he seemed content with that up, you know, up until that point at least. So yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> we, I can understand if we'd have been four or five days without something to eat, but at that time, I mean, being out there on the river, there's plenty of game out on the river. I mean, we ate mussels, right. we found mussels, we roasted mussels, uh, we shot owls, we shot pigeons, whatever, you know, was out there, we would eat. Because let me tell you, I'm used to eating strange stuff to stay alive. You know, I mean, and this this doesn't, I mean, the impression you're giving me, like, you guys weren't having a rough time out there. Like, it doesn't seem like you absolutely weren't enjoying yourselves. No, it was, we had pleasant weather. I mean, right. it was Ju- July. There was no rainstorms or anything like that that we had to worry about. Nobody ever bothered us out there. Uh, <coughs> we had plenty to eat. We had fried potatoes. We had salt and pepper. Uh, we had stuff to drink. We had water. You guys I talked mean, over the campfire and got yeah, a bed and. I mean, as 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 far as I can remember, we we had a pretty good time out there. Right. So it's not like he should have been particularly down about anything that was going on. At least not about what was going on at that point in time. Right. If he was depressed about something, he kept it very well hidden. Right. Because I never did pick up on it. And believe me, I've been depressed since I was a kid. He kept it hidden from me very well. If that's what the case was, if he was depressed, I don't know. Right. Do you recall his, can you describe, if you remember, his his uh, demeanor or his even his physical um, animate? Was he an animated person with a lot of energy? Was he a downer? Was he a funny guy? Did he hang his head hang his head or hold his head up? Did he talk loud? What's that? He was a he was a fairly upbeat guy, if you ask me. Huh. Uh not real animated, but kind of quirky, I guess. Not quirky, uh outgoing? He, he a little outgoing. He could crack a joke when he wanted to. He didn't he didn't talk Oh, you know, my life's been so bad. 
oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you know, and stuff like that. He, he was never like that. Right. He was always, like, upbeat, enjoying life. Even though we was camped out out there and eating birds and stuff like that, he, he was, he enjoyed life. That's yeah. what I got out of it. It's that's why so I can't, weird. It's that's so why weird. I can't understand why he ended up hanging himself in jail with the leg of his coverall <laughs> trousers because that's, I'm just. I've yeah, you in, must have been floored when they told you that. Well, they just told me he hung himself. I found out through the podcast or somewhere that it was, they found him hanging by his coveralls. Have you ever tied a noose out of out of a leg of coveralls or pants? I mean, personally, no. <laughs> it's virtually impossible. I mean, we had we had talked about that a little bit. I think not necessarily on the pod, you know, like anything you would have heard on the podcast. But we're just like, how do you even, how do you even make that happen? You you would have to cut those pant legs open to form strips, and without something to cut with, I don't know anything about the jail there. I've never been in it or anything. I lived close to the courthouse. My sister and I used to play on the courthouse steps when we was kids. Uh, I remember that, but I've never been inside the jail, so I don't know what it's like or anything, and I couldn't tell you. But I do know that it's virtually impossible to tie a noose with a pant leg. Right. Bon, I, I guess um, from the description, I guess what I gathered from it was he didn't he didn't tie a noose. He just kind of, um, it, I mean, and, and maybe this is partially assumptions that I drew up in my head, but he um, actually just tied the legs together and like hung, you know, by the neck. But like there wasn't any he could have gotten off of it if he wanted to. But he didn't. Obvi- uh, apparently, didn't want to. Yeah, there's. I mean, I'm telling you, there's something that ain't. And that's right that's why James it. wants to go and look at the photos too. It's when, it's um that's part of it is he he, he want, it's hard you you want to understand it for yourself because it it does sound weird. Yeah, I'll just clarify a little bit. Um, first of all, I don't know if I want to look at them, but I feel like I have to for the story. But um, the the judge released the uh, autop- autopsy inquest to us, but she ruled that the photographs can never be reproduced, copied, or or distributed. They're afraid that they'll end up on the internet, and they're obviously not nice pictures. Um, so I understand. I understand that. So the only way to look at them, they are open. I mean. I, I do have permission to go to the the clerk's office next week and look at them. Uh, and the things I'm interested in is, again, that noose, as Lisa Joe said. But also, I just feel like I have to see what he looks like, his hair length, which I don't, I don't think we've talked about that today. Uh, the length of his hair, mustache, beard, things like that. Do you remember that? Brownish hair, collar length, maybe a little longer scruffiness i don't remember a beard or a full or mustache he was a little scruffy from road travel but at the time maybe 150 160 pounds i couldn't really tell you 
wearing a fatigue jacket, his jeans, and with a pack and a bedroll. I mean, the only reason I remember really well about us camping together and stuff like that because the guy committed suicide in my hometown in jail. So that made a, a definite impact on my life. That's why I remember as much as I do about it. You know, if I if he'd have never committed suicide, I'd probably vaguely remember about him. But since right. he committed suicide in jail, that caused me to remember much more than I would have normally. Because mm-hmm. I've got a bad memory, let me tell you. <laughs> It's been a we long find time. that a lot of people after 40 years have a bad memory. So, And I've got one of the worst because I've been around this country a time or two, and it's not been a pleasant life. So, yeah. But anyway. Well, in, my, in my opinion, you're not doing half bad. Well, you know, like I said before, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I look back on life and see that the things that I should have done and the roads I should have taken – but I didn't, and now here I am stuck, not stuck where I'm at. It's just this is where I've come to rest. Right there with your granddaughter. Right, and it's this is this is where I've lit, and this is where I've landed, and I guess this is where I stay. If I could get to Montana just one more time, I would love it because I've not been back to Montana since I last visited my brother where he lays in Whitehall, and that was in 1990, last time I visited him. And I believe that was one of two times that I've ever been to my brother's grave. I don't know how the two of you feel about this, but I'm wondering, well, first of all, listeners are wondering, what's the deal here that Lisa's going to help something to do with your brother? Do you want to let them in on any of that? And then we'll sign off and stay on the phone and you guys can talk about how she can help you with that or do you want to talk about it on the podcast or do you want want to not even I hey I don't mind giving the circumstances to my brother's death yeah I think it'd be good I mean somebody the thing with these podcasts is somebody I mean it's literally how we found you um somebody out there might know something and they might come forward if you tell the story well, to the best of my knowledge, my parents sent my brother Colt to the Helena's Boys Home in Helena, Montana, probably about 69 or 70. They were still together when they sent him there. I was told he had brain damage. I don't know how true that was. I know that my mom was a heroin addict. And my dad was a drunk, an alcoholic at that time. And I know that my mom, anyway, we're getting off track here. I mean, it's okay. They they sent him to Helena Boys Home. And in 1972, when my mom dropped me and my sister off, my grandparents left us. I was with my grandparents for four years or so my sister got adopted out after two years by a nice family well kind of nice we thought they were nice and they may be i hell i don't know anyway, <laughs> better than uh, where she was they didn't right? they didn't seem too nice to me but they took care of her in a fairly in a better way than my grandparents did so that's all yeah. good with me 
Right. Anyway, we ended up moving from Canyon Teo to Clint, Texas, plumb over on the other side of El Paso. And set the place up over there, all the cat houses and everything. And moved all those cats? Oh, yeah, all the cats, the cat houses, everything over there to to the new property. Sorry, that was really off the topic. I'm just like trying to figure that out in my head, but go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) So, anyway, uh, I get up from breakfast one morning. I'm sitting there at the table eating some cereal. And my grandmother walks in and says, got a phone call at 2 o'clock this morning. Your brother's dead. I was, like, I was like, do what? She said, yeah, he drowned up there outside of Whitehall, Montana, in the Clark River. I was like, well, can I go up there and go to the funeral? She said, nah. Sometime when we're up there, we'll put flowers on his grave. Yeah. And it was shortly after. In fact, it was that day. When she told me that, I felt it in me. I heard it in me. I had had enough of the, the molestations, the rapings, everything. The starving, the cats, smelling like cat all the time in school. I had had enough, and I felt myself snap. So that evening, I went to the extreme and finally got away from them people. They were alive after I was taken from them. That's a good point. That's a good thing. That That is a good point because I was starting to wonder how you got away. But yeah, we can leave it can, at that. Yes, please. We can leave but it at that. I don't really believe my brother drowned because the last report that I got was he was his body was found on the riverbank, not by the river, not in the river, on the river bank. And his body was so decomposed, which means it had sat there for a few months, maybe, but it was so decomposed, they could not give a cause of death. So since it was found on the river bank, they concluded that it was a drowning. The only way they identified the body, what was left of it, was because my brother had a belt buckle with his name engraved on the back, and he happened to be wearing that belt. Oh, wow. I hadn't even considered how they ID'd him. I, I guess I assumed dentals. Uh, not way back when. Right. Not, not way back so then. This would have been uh, uh, 1974? 74, right in, right in there. Okay. At this point in the conversation, Mr. Sullivan provided a theory of his speculation about someone who might have been actually responsible for his brother's death. For obvious reasons, we are editing out quite a bit of that conversation. Because I think when he showed up at the boys' ranch, him and his buddy were going to do me. This is what I think. Yeah, why did he, I mean... Did he say why he showed up? No, just out of the blue, he showed up. And the, when when we went into town, they, they said they asked permission for me to go into town with them. We took off the whole time in that, I was in that car. Oh, you I went with him. him? Oh, geez. Yeah, because he told me that 
they had already got permission. So I went. And the whole time I was in that car, I had a terrified feeling because I heard the butt, the, the friend tell me that it's not a good idea because everybody knows that I am with them. Jesus. So it was like an hour later, they ended up taking me back to the ranch, dropping me off, and I never seen them again until a few years ago. And I was talking, and he said, well, I've got some information for you from about Colt and his death, but I need to give it to you personally. Well, I said, you can just email it to me. And I gave him my email address. I never got any info on my brother's death at all. Now, here's my speculation. Here's what I'm thinking. I think that he took that car, made the trip up to Montana, lured my brother out of his foster home somehow, and did him right there on the riverbank. And made his way down to the boys' ranch coming after me. That is what yeah. I'm, I'm going to grab, I mean, and we don't have to do this right now. We can do this at the end, but um, I'm going to grab some more details on that guy from you. Things that, like when I got Colt's picture today. We didn't tell listeners that. Um, today, Lisa Joe, or. <sighs> well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if if she'd want her name on there, but um, we have we have a, a awesome, we'll say a research assistant. She's a researcher herself, and um, she actually found that. And I don't want to take credit for it because I I actually did not dig that one up. She, gotcha. She did. It's a photograph from a, a news article, and it has. Mr. Sullivan's brother, Cole, in it. He's about, I guess... Colt. C-O-L-T. Colt. Right, sorry. Uh, he looks like about 11 years old, maybe. I don't know, 12, not, somewhere in there. And we sent it. I asked Mr. Sullivan if he'd like a copy of it. I emailed it to him today. And, well, you tell us, I guess. <laughs> I don't believe you'd seen a picture of your brother for a while. I haven't seen my brother's face in a picture or in person since 1970. When he, when he went to the, to, to the boys' home there in Helena. And I had, I had forgotten what he looked like until that picture today. I'm willing to bet before this is all over that Lisa Joe and her assistant might even find more photographs of your brother and... I hope I'm not speaking too much for other people when I know I think, you know, Barbara Cotton's sister, Kathy, this might be one of those times when she would say, like Lisa Joe says, she doesn't want to take credit for it. I know her assistant doesn't necessarily want to take credit for it. I don't. Um, Kathy, I think Kathy would say that is Barbara Cotton has brought you this photograph. She she absolutely would. Well. All I know is I, I have not got anything from my family. Nothing. No pictures. No heirlooms. I know the the Cotton family so much appreciates you doing this. We have been trying to find Red C.E. Sullivan, possibly goes by Rusty. Um, you know, we started looking for Red, Red months ago. In the last week, we haven't slept. We've been 
trying to find you because of what information you might possibly have. It was incredibly important information that you gave us. Um, I, I know the Cotton family is very grateful. Is there anything you'd like to say to the Cotton family? I hope you all find closure. I hope something comes of this case to give you all peace. Because I can't imagine what y'all are going through. And I wish I could be more help. But I knew very little about Stacy. We spent very little time together. And before any kind of friendship ever really got started, he was gone. So all I can say is I hope things work out where y'all can find some closure on this situation. Because I do, I would not ever want to be in your shoes at all. Okay, Mr. Sullivan, please stay on the line. Um, and we, we can talk to Lisa Joe here more about how to help you with your um, information you're looking for. But I just want to, again, say thank both of you. Thank you so much for for taking part in this episode of A Better Search for Barbara Cotton. Thank you so much. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. To support the Find Barb Cotton Billboard Fund, head over to findbarbcotton.com or email Lisa Joe at findbarbcotton at gmail.com. A Better Search for Barbara is written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner, and researched by myself and the growing community of people dedicated to getting answers about Barbara's disappearance. Many thanks to Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, for providing awesome music for this season. Check him out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on Bandcamp.com. And why not check out the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or find me on Twitter. To contact me, email me at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.
come on, it's been 40 years. Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.